welcome everyone to Creekside Church this morning. We are, we are here to worship our God this morning. And we're here to focus on Him as King, Him as Lord, and His uh, power over what's going on around us. And so it's, it's great to have everyone here in person, everyone worshiping with us online as well. I just want to read a couple of verses that, that maybe kind of capture some of um, what, we, what we want to sing about today and, and keep in mind. Uh, from Psalm 57, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the, to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I think we are all feeling fear and hopelessness around us right now. I'm just wondering if now is the prime time to tell others the reason of the hope that is within us, going into all the world and preaching the gospel, the good news. But when we ourselves are having a hard time remembering why we can be hopeful, why we can have joy, and how we can have peace rather than fear, it's hard to tell others of the hope and joy and love and peace that the coming of Jesus is to us. We need to remind ourselves before we can tell others of it. When I was finishing up writing this devotional Bible study activity book for Advent, The Fears and Knots of Christmas, during the shutdown of COVID, I wondered if this might be a good tool to use in sharing Jesus at Christmas time. Maybe we all have a friend who celebrates Christmas, goes to church for Christmas, but really don't know if they know the Savior of Christmas. Perhaps you would like some help knowing how you can go alongside a friend and tell them, like the shepherds did, that they don't need to be afraid of the light. He's come to save them and not destroy them. Maybe you have an acquaintance who is experiencing fears common to man, as those stories of Christmas did. If you are feeling your need of encouragement, some courage put in you, you can join us for a four, short four-week commitment starting in two Wednesdays, October 14th to November 4th at 6.30. We will give you opportunity to be one-on-one -on -one with another sister and go through this book, having times of fellowship over the Lord of Heaven's armies, the one who came to save lives and not destroy them, finding out that all things are possible with God, even bearing fruit in barren situations. The books are $20 and will be found out in the lobby. If you're wanting to join us, you will need to be prepared to do four weeks, five days a week of easy-to-do questions, and you will learn how to lead another away from fear, as you yourself will know the way. We hope you ladies will join us in one and a half weeks, Wednesday nights at 6.30 for four weeks, as we learn with Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds why we do not need to fear, even during such tumultuous times as these and prepare to share the good news with others. And those that have already bought a book, you can find it over there. If you haven't gotten it already, it has your name on it. Thank you. Hi, guys. Uh, we need Karen uh, up here and Ryan, please come on up. Yeah, while they're, they're coming up, I just want to say we're all just really humbled by the Lord for this opportunity to go to Haiti this year. It was like a roller coaster. It really was. It was on again, off again. COVID 
can't go to Haiti, it's closed down, the borders, and when you got to come, come back, you've got to quarantine. When you get, get there, you've got to quarantine for 14 days, so how does that work? We're only there for, you know, seven days, so. But we just really feel, we know we've got our own stories about how God has led individually us to, to say yes, to go, and I'm going to share a little bit about my story. Uh, but we want to thank you all with our hearts for your support, your prayer support. We know you're going to pray for us while we're gone. And you've been praying already. And pray for us, you know, on our way back again. And thank you, thank you for that. And thank you for your financial support, too, and making it possible for us to go. So praise God. And this is my wife, Karen. And this is uh, Ryan. He's a good brother, and he's, the three of us are going to Haiti, praise God. So we're leaving Wednesday morning and uh, returning Friday, October 9th. And I just want to share a little bit about how I feel like the Lord has led me to go. You know, it's just been a roller coaster. It's really pretty much right in the middle. I didn't know if it was going to go or not, and then Micah Tuttle showed up, and uh, his message... Uh, spoke to my heart. God used a message by the Holy Spirit. Micah was saying, hold fast to your faith. Don't let go. Get a death grip on your, your profession of faith and what you believe in. And he was talking about facing the giants and facing the corona giant. I think he even mentioned that. And then something that really spoke to me was that Micah said, you know, we should really be ready to die for Christ if he calls us to die for him. And I remember sitting there saying to the Lord, the Holy Spirit was just really talking to me. Yes, Lord, I'm willing to die for you if you want me to die for you, because you died for me. And it just felt really under conviction that God was speaking to me, knocking on my shoulder. You're going. You're going to Haiti no matter what. Giants, if you die, whatever, I want you to go. And that was just a real peace for me. And I remember just tears coming down my eyes, and I was calling for, you know, Bob Short to come over and sit with me and pray for me, and he did, and so uh, that's just a brief story of why I feel strong about going, and I know God's going to be with us and take care of us, and uh, Joshua 1.9 was mentioned in Micah's uh, story, and Larry even talked about it this morning a little bit in the first service, fear not, for I am with you, uh, do not be discouraged, I'm with you wherever you go, so wherever we go, Haiti, Germany, France, Asia, God's with us, and he's calling, as he calls you, obey, God's calling on your life too, so appreciate that, yeah, Karen. I just wanted to say that, um, I just kept praying for the Lord to open the doors or shut the doors, whether or not we should go, and as Norb said, at first it was two weeks quarantine when you come back, two weeks quarantine when you get there, the borders are closed, all that is gone. There's no more quarantining there, no more quarantining here. And also they first had to tell us we had to have COVID tests before we come in and all that's gone. So I just feel like um, that's one of the ways I just feel like the Lord has opened the doors and um, just gave us peace about going this year. So. Well, Karen, Karen's <laughs> going to be teaching a women's hygiene class in the hospital. And uh, I'm going to be teaching a three-day, three-morning Bible seminar on the book of Joshua, chapters one through three. And Ryan is going to be helping out wherever he needs, God needs him. <laughs> He's going to just be there, show up, and be a good helper. All right. 
Uh, I'd just like to uh, pray for these folks, and uh, we'll commission them from our church as uh, ministers to Haiti. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your goodness to us and thankful for your call on our lives and that you have called us not just to sit and uh, rejoice in that, but to go and to share that love with others. And so I thank you for these three and for this church body as we partner together uh, to share the gospel in Pion, Haiti. And I pray for safe travels. I pray for you to give this group courage and boldness to speak clearly the, the gospel, that you'd open doors of opportunity for them, that they'd make it clear in the way that they ought to. And I pray that you just encourage them to rest in you and to enjoy uh, this time trusting you for each encounter, each interaction, and to roll with the punches, Lord, we pray and commit them into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, you bet. Lord bless. Lord bless. Yeah, it's great. It's exciting to see them stepping out like that. Also, I want to <clears throat> just call your attention tonight, we're planning on an outdoor service, the uh, so we're trusting that God will dry it out and we'll be able to be outside out here in the, on the playground area. So if you want to bring a chair, you might want to bring a blanket. It's not supposed to be as warm as it has been, so you might want to bring a blanket. It starts at 6 o'clock tonight. Uh, looking forward to hearing uh, from some singing and just sharing together. And Brandon Short's going to be sharing with us a little bit of a devotional a message that he's going to bring to us. So we're excited about the young guys giving an opportunity to, to speak. I've been asked to announce that uh, Aaron and Brooke's wedding is coming up, and so on October 25th at 6 p.m. is the reception. Everybody in the church is invited to the reception, but you need to RSVP, so you need to talk to Ann Carter, and uh, there she is in the back, So, and there's information on the bulletin board out here. Is that right, Ann? There's information, so you need to RSVP before next Sunday or by next Sunday. Otherwise, if you show up, no food. So you just be there for the fellowship, okay? So we want to encourage you to sign up. So those online, if you need to get a hold of Ann, uh, you can contact Megan and just RSVP through Megan at the church office, and she can let Ann know. Also, I just remind you that we are printing some bulletins now. So if you want to get a hard copy of what's happening in the church, you can pick those bulletins up at the Welcome Center. And if you are here with us as a guest for the very first time, this is your first time at Creekside, or you're listening online, we'd sure appreciate uh, getting some feedback from you. So if you're online, you can just email us with your information and let us know you're listening. If you're here in person, if you'd stop by the Welcome Center and fill out one of our just welcome cards, we'd appreciate that and put it in the offering. And then as our guest, that's all we'd ask you to put in the offering. The box for offering is out there in the entryway, so just encourage you to do that. All right, that's all the announcements I have. I'd like you to Pray with me as we look to the Lord. For Father, we are privileged to be here. I, I just thank you. I know it's kind of dreary out, but Lord, I thank you for the rain. Uh, we need the rain, and we're grateful for it, and we understand that it is a gift from you. Uh, we thank you for the chance to worship you together in spirit and in truth. And Father, as we have tried to navigate through some of these difficult, naughty issues that are so relevant to our culture and to our lives right now, we just thank you for your grace and your peace and pray that you'd continue to guide us in our study and help us to live out the truth of your word first and foremost in our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and commit this time in your word praying that you would nurture our hearts
transform our lives and use us for your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, the state of California has been, they, well, not recently, but they enacted a, a COVID-19 restriction that prohibited uh, larger gatherings, gatherings larger than 50. And so some of you are familiar with the fact that Grace Community Church, which is pastored by John MacArthur in Southern California, has recently decided that they're going to go back to in-person worship services in defiance of the governor's order that they not do that. And their actions has kind of, have kind of brought to the fore the, the tension that uh, Christians feel and have regarding these issues of our faith and living out our faith in light of the government and restrictions and rules and regulations and how our faith mixes with that of civil authority. Uh, you know, increasingly, we, we hear of churches that are all about you know, social justice, that are all involved in politics, churches that are actively seeking to collaborate, get it out yet, collaborate with other groups to improve the culture. On the other extreme, you have churches that say, church and faith, separate, completely separate with, from, from government and civil actions and civil involvement. Can't have those two mixing. In fact, they would ascribe to a statement that I read recently by Robert Otley who said that the focus should be on, not on better institutions, but on better men. Well, I don't disagree with that, that we should be focused on better men or women and people. But it seems like those two extremes are the extremes and that the Scripture doesn't really warrant either absolute extreme, that we're only focusing on one and we're not focusing on the other. No, the idea is that we're Christians and the Word of God should have an impact in our lives in every aspect of our life. I like this quote that I read on social media. It says, if you claim to be a person of faith... And it does not dictate your politics, you're not a person of faith. Now, I realize that's a charged statement, but if you claim to be a person of faith, and that faith, and I will substitute, if that faith doesn't dictate your actions in every aspect of your life, politics, family, whatever, then you're really not a person of faith. It seems like to me, as I read the scriptures, that our understanding of and our submission to God and his word should guide our perspective and our participation in civil matters, in every matter. And so we're going to look at the word. And so this morning, I want you to look with me at the scriptures. If you have your Bibles or you have your device, you can go to Romans 13. That's where we're going to be camping, but we're going to be going down a lot of different rabbit trails. So you just keep your Bible open to Romans 13. And I want you to look with me this morning at four key elements in what the Bible has to say to us about God and government that really should impact our lives, or I think make a difference in, in our lives. And the, the first thing we're going to talk about, I'm going to read Romans 13, and then I'm going to unpack these four key elements. Romans 13, beginning with verse 1, uh, Paul has spent the first 11 chapters of Romans talking about our position in Christ and what it means to be separated from God and what it means to be brought to union with Christ through faith and then what that, uh, what that looks like as his children. There's nothing greater than our, our faith. But then he spends... The next chapters after that, 12 and following, 
on what that practically works out like. What do we do with this faith that we have found? And so here we are in Romans 13, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 5. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And so the first thing, again, this is not primarily drawn from this passage, okay, but the first element that we will look at is God's role in our governance. What, what role does God have in governing us, okay, and in providing government for us? And I want you to look at several considerations. First of all, think about this, this is a repeat, but God is our sovereign creator, in Genesis 1, 26 through 31, we looked at this a few weeks ago, God sovereignly and almightily created human beings and we are, because we are unique in his creation, as in his image, we have dignity. And there is sanctity for human beings. That's why to take the life of another human being is a big deal because we're created in the image of God. We saw this from Genesis 1, we saw it in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. So God has created us, and he's created us with a claim on our lives, and we're to live for his glory. Uh, Marla and I know a young gal, and when she was, she was recruited as a D1 college basketball player to play at a Division I school, she didn't really play much, but she was on the team, and the team basically had a claim on her life. I mean, she, she worked and had to work out and do everything she had to do in order to fulfill the requirements of her calling as, as, as an athlete. Well, in the same way, God has created us to live for his glory. Problem is, we messed up. And our dive into sin tainted that relationship with God. It, it messed it all up so that we are messed up. And uh, I'm just going to read one verse in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. Uh, the prophet says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And then he goes on to say, But he has caused the iniquity of us all to, to fall on him, that one, on Jesus. So we're messed up, and because we're messed up, we deserve God's wrath. That's why God didn't just sovereignly create us, but he mercifully provided a savior for us. That's the second thing that I want you to see. And he did that if you read prior to, you can just write this down if you want, but in Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And then he goes on to say, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. Well, that's kind of maybe difficult language, but the point is this. We were created to bring God glory. We decided to rebel against God. God made a way for us to be restored back into a relationship with himself through his son. So he was crushed 
for our iniquities. He took the punishment that we deserved upon himself so that all who would put their trust or their faith in this Jesus who died for us would be reconciled back into God, back to God in right relationship with himself and that we would be justified by our faith. I was reading Galatians recently in Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. Uh, there's a verse that's really, uh, I thought was, explains it very well. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works, that is, you're not made righteous, you're not brought back into right relationship with God by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. And then Paul goes on in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 11, and chapter 3, verse 26, and he, he says this. He says that, uh, basically at the end of verse 26, chapter 3, he says that we're justified by faith in Christ Jesus. So we're messed up, deserve to die, God sent Jesus, we trust in Christ, and we're redeemed, we're reconciled. So he is our sovereign creator with a claim on our life, we rejected his claim, he made a way for us to be brought back into the fold, he's our merciful savior, he's our great God and our king. And now we see, the third thing is, He's our supreme ruler. Creator, Savior, ruler. Psalm 24, verse 1. You just write this down. But the essence of it is, the earth is the Lord's, and he reigns over it. Okay? He's the ruler. And he's not just a ruler of those who acknowledge him as the ruler. He's the ruler of all. Whether we acknowledge it or not, he is the king. I, I like this passage in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22, and I'm going to put, you, put it up on the screen for you. Well, I'm not going to. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. And it says this, The Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king. He will save us. No, notice that? He's our judge, he is our lawgiver, and he is our king. But not everybody acknowledges him as judge, lawgiver, and king. And if you're a parent, you recognize that your children don't always acknowledge you as the supreme authority in your home. One of our children at one particular point was trying to be a little uh, rebel and trying to uh, push back against the authority. And as parents, we are, in essence, the judge, lawgiver, and king in our home. And so this one thought that they could rebel against that. They didn't have to submit to that. Well, they found out that when their videos were taken away, that's how dated it is, okay, so they didn't have streaming services, we didn't have DVDs, we had videos, so the videos were taken away. Oh, I guess you are the, the king. But think about what this means. God is, God is king, and as king, he makes the rules, the laws. And as king who makes the rules, he also asks us to follow the rules. And when we don't follow the rules, we're held accountable. He's the judge of everyone, of all creation. When I was in high school sports, the coach was the king, lawgiver, and judge. The coach set the rules. The coach held us accountable to the rules. The coach did what, and if we didn't follow the rules, then we were in trouble. I remember one day showing up for football practice, and there were no footballs. What? No footballs at a football practice. 
Well, this was partway through the season, and one of my teammates had been reportedly downtown uh, late one night and had broken one of the rules. And as a lawbreaker, we were all held accountable because nobody was going to squeal or rat out this person, so everybody got to pay the judgment. And so we ran and 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 ran. It was a no-ball practice. Not a fun time, but everybody understood that the coach was the king, the coach was the judge, and the coach was the lawgiver, and we had to follow the rules. God is our king, and he, we ultimately worship and serve the king. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then Jesus and the Lord, he is the king, and he deserves and receives our, our utmost Obedience. There's no authority, no authority for the child of God that is greater and to whom we has greater claim on our allegiance or our obedience than God. No, no authority has greater claim or obedience. And we live in light of that reality. That's what we're called to do in our family, in our community, in our business, in our work, every relationship. He is the king and we submit to him and him alone. I know a, I heard a businessman say that, uh, a Christian businessman say, he said, you know, I used, to, I used to struggle with things on TV, watching things that I shouldn't watch on TV. So whenever he was out of town and traveling, he'd go into a hotel room and he'd put a towel from the bathroom over the TV. That was because he was letting God be the lawgiver, the king, and the judge. So we need to understand God's role in our governance. And secondly, we need to understand our responsibility in being governed. And this is where we come to Romans chapter 13. And the first thing we need to see in the text, I think, is our requirement. Notice it says in verse 1, let every person. So who are the exceptions? Every person. And particularly Christians because we have been called to be good citizens are to be in subjection, submissive, subjection to the governing authorities. What does it mean to be submissive to governing authorities? It's willful, it's a command, first of all, okay? So it's a command for willful obedience to the laws and respect for those who are charged with making the laws and keeping the laws. Willful obedience to those who make them and those who carry them out. So it says in First Peter, First uh, Peter chapter two, verse thirteen, that we're to be subject to every every institution. Now think about this. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. You're supposed to be subject to every institution, and every institution since then. Now think about what that would include. Okay, so if you're living in Hitler's Germany or under the regime of Saddam Hussein, or in Castro's Cuba, as a believer, you're supposed to be in subjection to these authorities. And think about Paul. It was Caesar's henchmen and the Jewish leaders who were almost always opposed to Christians. Oh, so just be submissive to them. See, believers are called to live in harmony in the midst of an ungodly society because we're seeking to bring God glory. 
is a familiar passage that many of you uh, know in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Now, what is <laughs> Jeremiah talking to the Jewish people who have been sent into captivity in Babylon? <laughs> so now you're in captivity, but now seek the welfare of the city which I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. Hmm. So why would we do that? Why would we be in submission? Our requirement is to be submissive, but so why would we do that? The text lays out for us at least three reasons for being submissive. And the first one is this. Government is sourced in God. Look at the end of verse 3. For there, now notice the word for. You can circle that, underline it, asterisk, or whatever you want to do in your Bible, because that gives us the reason for the command. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Wow. And see, this is not new in the New Testament. You see this in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 4. I want you to look at the screen. We're gonna, you can write these down if you want. But Daniel 4.17 says, This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High, now get this, the Most High, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. Then in verse 25, he says that you may be driven away, he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you may be given grass to eat like the cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize what? That the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. The Lord God is the ruler of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. He reads the same thing in verse 32. So in chapter 4, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 25, chapter 4, verse 32, he repeats the same thing. The Most High is a ruler of the realm of all mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. You see, there are three divinely ordained institutions. The family in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. The church, Acts chapter 1 and 2, and the whole book of Acts and Ephesians and all of the New Testament. And then governments, government authorities, that are established by God to serve His purposes. Okay? Every elected politician, we're in an election year, right? So, okay, every elected politician has derivative authority from their electorate. They, they, they represent us. But guess what? Their ultimate derivative authority doesn't come from us. It comes from God. Because he rules over mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. So this begs the question. If human government's uh, governance comes from God, then verse 2, the natural question is, well, or the conclusion is that if human governance comes from God and we resist human governance, then who are we resisting? God. So is it ever okay, is it ever justified to resist human authority, which comes from God? Well, that's a question because that's where I opened this whole thing with was a church in Southern California who's resisting human authority. On what basis would you do that? It's called civil disobedience. On what basis would you do that? It is ever justified. Here's my attempt at a statement that gives direction. Okay? Christians are obliged to willingly, winsomely, 
and wholly submit to governing authorities. Okay? We're supposed to do this willingly and winsomely and wholly submit to governing authorities unless, and I say unless, unless obedience to the state means disobedience to God. Unless obedience to the state means disobedience to God. So here's the deal. If the state commands what God forbids or the state forbids what God commands, we have a necessity, we are necessarily to be disobedient to the state. But that's the exception, not the rule. Okay, so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not here beating the civil disobedience drum. I'm saying it is a provision from Scripture because why? I started this whole thing with God is our supreme ruler, right? We are, our allegiance and obedience is first and foremost to Him, not to these civil authorities, even though they represent Him and they serve Him. There's biblical precedents. And I'm just going to run through these quickly so you can write them down and you can look them up later. It's always amazed me as I read through the book of Exodus, the first part of Exodus chapter 1 verse 17. And the midwives are told by Pharaoh that they must destroy the lives of the firstborn sons of the Hebrew women. And they don't do it. And then it says God blessed them. They were blessed for their disobedience to Pharaoh. You think of the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told, here, here's what you're going to eat from the king's food. And they say, oh, well, you know, we're, yeah, sorry, not going to do that. Uh, we, we'll, can we just try something else? They give them an option. They didn't just bold-faced defiance, but they didn't eat. Then in chapter 3, we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow down to the, to the image and are thrown into the fiery furnace. Then in Daniel chapter 6, we have Daniel who kept on praying when he was told by a decree of Darius, not to pray, and in every instance, and he was thrown into the lion's den. Well, there we have it. And then in the New Testament, it's not unheard of either, because we have um, the boys, Peter and, and, uh, and John, were forbidden to speak in Jesus' name. And I, I, I think we have this in Acts chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. It's on the screen. And when they had summoned them, that is the council, the Jerusalem council, the big hot shots of uh, politics and religion, basically religious people, uh, they commanded them, that is Peter and John, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, all of this. Whether it's right in the eyes of God or of you to obey you rather than God, you be the judge. But you know what? And this is my paraphrase. We're just going to keep on talking about Jesus. What we have seen and heard. We, we're not going to be silent about what we know. Well, they didn't really like that. But then in chapter 5, they come back to him and they say this. We gave you strict orders to con not to continue teaching in his name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Here's the deal, folks. God calls us to obey him, first and foremost, uh, above, above men. So government, the first reason is because government comes from God. That's why we submit to it. But we don't always submit to it when it asks us, when it forbids what God commands and commands what God forbids. Secondly, reason for submitting is that government is, is intended, its purpose is to restrain and punish evil. Chapter 13, the end of verse 2. It says, and they, that is the, the governing authorities, they who resist governing authorities, 
have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. In verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Then go down to verse um, 4, at the end of verse, uh, second part of verse 4. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon one who practices evil. See, we're fallen creatures, prone to do evil. So God, in his infinite wisdom, made a provision that he would give governments the authority to punish us, to restrain evil, and to punish evil, because we wouldn't do it naturally. Unfortunately, injustice, oppression, deception, corruption, and immorality are present in our world, right? God understood that, and so he gave us governments and government authorities to, as a deterrent to evil. When, when, when you drive down, some of you don't do this, but if you lived right in our area, if you drive down 73rd Street in Clive, and you see the little white car parked on the curb, actually up on the grass, with a little camera on the top of it that checks your speed, you know what? It deters people from speeding. If you see a police vehicle parked along the road, it deters you from speeding. Why? Because government and government authorities are put in place to restrain evil and to punish it. Opposition to civil laws is resistance to God. And as a result, God has invested those authorities with the right to bring wrath upon those who practice evil. Now, I'm going to say this. Many of you have heard and you've seen what's happening in, in St. Louis with the, uh, uh, no, Louisville, I'm sorry, with uh, Breonna Taylor. Uh, the sad and tragic loss of her life. And it is sad and tragic loss of, of her life. And the unfortunate thing is that it came as a result of her boyfriend shooting a police officer. And the police followed their normal procedures in responding to deadly force with deadly force. And she was caught in the crossfire. That's a tragic thing. I mean, I'm not trying to make light of that at all. But here's the deal. It was alleged evil that brought the police to that residence. They had a warrant to search the place because of suspicions of wrongdoing. But it was actual wrongdoing that led to the tragic events of that day. Because God has put the system in place that those who do evil will reap sometimes reward. I'm not saying that of Brianna Taylor, but it's a consequence of the evil that was done. Okay? It's generally true that we have nothing to fear if we do what's right. You know, generally true. But I also understand that some people have been unjustly profiled. They have been unjustly followed. They have been unjustly treated in spite of these, these reasons that we're supposed to not fear those who do what, what's right. If you do what's right, you're not supposed to be afraid. I think about that, that guy who was driving through Los Angeles the other night. 
and I saw it on uh, the social media, but this guy was driving his little white car through a crowd of protesters, and then he, he proceeded to go through them with his flashing lights, very safely drove through them, and then somebody didn't like that, so they, they pulled up ahead of him and blocked him off from in front and behind, and they got out of this vehicle, and they started beating on his windshield, crashing the windshield, grabbing at him, uh, trying to trash him and stuff, and so he backed, and then he took off again. He didn't run over anybody or anything. He took off again, and guess what happened? The police arrested him. The police arrested him. Well, you know, we're not supposed to fear. Uh, we're only supposed to fear if we do what's evil, but here he was doing what's right, and if you do what's right, you're not supposed to be able to fear, but sometimes it happens. But the, 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 we're supposed to fear if we do what's evil. That's why when we see municipalities throughout our, our country permitting looting and violence and vandalism, they're abdicating their God-given responsibility to protect their citizens, but also to punish what is evil. Now, our calling as believers is primarily not, not primarily, not primarily the eradication of evil, okay, but the transformation of people. Okay. But transformation comes from a realization of sin. So, as God's people, we challenge godless ideologies and ungodly practices. Because we want to alert people to their evil so that they can turn from their evil and, and be transformed by their lives. So when godless ideologies teach people that they're good when they're not in fact good uh, in their heart. And when they ignore personal responsibility to obey and, provide and be good citizens, then we oppose that. There's another reason. The government is not just to punish and re retard evil or restrict evil, but it's also to promote good. And to reward what is good. And good is what's in the best interest of the people. This is Romans chapter 13, the end of verse 3. He says, do what is good and you will have no praise. You'll have praise of the same. Verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good. Okay? And good is what is good. I mean, it's what's right. Uh, nationally, we promote, we promote and recognize what is good. Uh, the Presidential Medal of Honor or Medal of, of Freedom is the highest award given to a citizen in the United States for promoting good and citizenship in the United States. In 2019 in Urbandale, uh, Tom Gaiman received the Citizen of the Year Award. That's an honor, you know, because you're a, you're a, you're a citizen. But promoting good involves protection of life and liberty and opportunities to keep people safe and healthy. And rulers, now get this, when it says in the, here that rulers are a minister to God for good, it doesn't say godly rulers are ministers of God for good. It just says rulers. <laughs> Regardless of whether they even believe in God or know God, they are a minister of God for good to the lawful and punishment to the awful. Okay. That's their ministry. And think about it. They're, they're like servants of God. And so that behooves us to respect them. That behooves us to pray for them, which is what Paul admonished us to do in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, is we're supposed to pray for them. So there is this understanding of God's governance, this understanding of our responsibility to being governed, and then thirdly, our realization of God's limitation on government. There are limitations to government, and a couple of them that I want to consider, two facts. First of all, a human government is necessarily flawed. 
Isaiah 53, 6. What do we say? All we like sheep have gone astray. So who makes up governments? People. Flawed people. Flawed people make up flawed governments. So you have an imperfect system. You have imperfect people making imperfect laws, imperfectly administering the law, and imperfectly following through on judgments and justice. We're, we're, we're a mess as people, so we don't do it right all the time, so it's necessarily flawed. I mean, think about the Bible. What was the greatest injustice ever committed? The cross of Christ. The only sinless person who paid the death penalty is an absolute abdication of any kind of justice. All right? It was a human court. Well, actually, it was Pilate, but okay. In America, this flawed system is to be tempered by what is called the rule of law. Okay? So in an ideal world, these are laws that are written, and they're equally and generally applied to everyone. Okay? Without exception. So there is this idea that consistently applied. So if you read in the news, if you've been reading the news, you read in the news that uh, the Attorney General has, there's new information that's come out on this Operation Crossfire Hurricane, this whole uh, idea of they were trying to indict the President uh, for collusion in the election of 2016, blah, 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 lots of stuff. And so when people hear that, some people, they hear, well, they've got some people uh, that have said some bad things and did some bad things, so let's, you know, let's get them right now. Well, the rule of law is intended to prevent vigilante justice and to ensure due process so that people who are actually innocent aren't just a victim of mob rule. You know, because of mobs have emotions and they don't really think all that. That's what the rule of law does. It's supposed to temper all that stuff. Flawed human beings uh, involved, uh, you know, in this whole thing. But you know what? On a whole, the system works pretty well. Usually, you, the bad guy gets punished and the good guy walks free. Not always. But we live in an imperfect world. And so where it's imperfect, we try to improve it. But we also accept the imperfections. Life doesn't always work out the way we want it to. But we need to look at it. Secondly, human government can restrain evil, but it cannot redeem people. Human government can restrain evil, but it cannot redeem people. 2 Corinthians, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What does that mean? Fallen people are living in the darkness. And they can't see it. But in verse 6, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, But God, who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, God made a way for blind people to see, spiritually blind people to see spiritual truth. And so that, that's what he did when, when he sent his son. The gospel alone is the power to save. Government is impotent to really remedy what's really our main malady, which is depravity. <laughs> We're sinful. But God made a way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave, he, he sent his son to the cross as a sacrifice for our sin so that all who believe would be 
forgiven and brought back into right relationship with God and restored to Him. God brought us this Jesus who is our Savior. And the offer of new and transformed life is available to all. Philippian jailer says to Paul, says, what must you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Because our mission is not primarily social justice. Our mission is the gospel so that people's hearts will be transformed. When people's hearts are transformed, then life and the world and civics and government is reformed. Because godly people live out their godly faith. The last thing I want to point out is that our recognition of government's influence under God. What, what does government do? Okay, so uh, God is governing. We have a responsibility. Government is limited. So what is the influence of government? I would like to submit that, first of all, government leaders and systems do impact morality. Even though we're not here Ultimately and primarily for the reformation of the government, the government does matter. And people who are in positions of power and authority do matter. Character does count. Think about it this way. In the Old Testament, the book of Judges, the time of the Judges, no king. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes, which meant evil, okay? Then you have the period of the judges, and you think, or the kings. Well, okay, you got good kings, you got bad kings. But when you had a good king, then the, the people did what was good. When you had a bad king, they did what was bad. When you had Jeroboam over here, things went downhill, 1 Kings chapter 12. You got Josiah over here in 2 Kings 22 and 23. Things went really well because the king was following God and his, and his word. This is how it works. America's leaders are responsible. And so when we think about these things, we should be thinking about responsible and the morality and the... Now, again, I'm not saying perfection, but I'm saying you have to consider these things. I mean, for example, yesterday the president nominated somebody for the Supreme Court, right? Now, on what basis did he do that? He did it on the basis of his perspectives on morality and the law and that kind of thing. But he also did it on that nominee's perspective on morality and those types of things. There are certain qualifications that matter. And so this is it. The second thing I'd like to point out is that America's founding was guided by God's word. America is not a Christian nation. Okay, let's just get that out there. Uh, never was a Christian nation but was basically founded on much of the principles of Christianity. Okay? And to deny that is to deny history. Okay? To say that America is a Christian nation, that is to deny history. To say that America is rooted and grounded in Christianity, that is history. Okay? 51 of the 55 uh, people who were at the Constitutional Convention that formed the formed the Declaration of Independence, these people were Christians. Okay? 51 of the 55, they were Christians. Okay? And they believed. They believed what? They believed that God created us in his own image. You can read it if you open the, the Declaration of Independence that all men are cre created with unalienable rights among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I didn't write that. But the men 
who were there did. Now, were they all perfect guys? No. No. Were they all consistent in their Christianity, in, in living out this ideal that all men are created equal? Well, not exactly, because some of them had slaves. That's, that's a fact. But not all of them had slaves. I didn't know this, but there were several states, I don't know if they were actually acknowledged by states, but they, several states that, that abolished slavery even before the Declaration of Independence. So, you know, let's get our facts straight. They were not all perfect people, but they did believe in unalienable rights. You know what, I'm going to ask, do, do you, if you're a believer, do you live out every jot and tittle of the Scripture? In, are you totally consistent in what you profess and what you practice? In every aspect of your life. And I'm guessing, you don't even have to answer that. No, you're not. And so you are a hypocrite like I'm a hypocrite. And the, the unbelievers like to throw that in our face. Well, you're just a hypocrite. Yeah, well, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. I'm just a poor representation of him. So these people weren't perfect. They believed that. Guess what else? They believed that the, the Ten Commandments were so important that the basis of our judicial system is the Ten Commandments. And you look at the laws. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. All these things come where? From Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. I like what James Madison said. He's the chief architect of the Constitution. He said religion, and he meant Christianity, so you can slice it however you want, but when James Madison at that time in history talked about religion, he talked about Christianity, okay? He says, is the base and foundation of government. And then thirdly, I want to point out the separation of powers. Where do we get this idea that there should be this judicial branch, this legislative branch, and this executive branch? Wow. Comes right out of the passage of Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. For the Lord is our judge, he is our lawgiver, and he is our king. There you have it. There is the judiciary, there is the legislative, and there is the executive branch of government. And that's where they got it from. John Adams stated this, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So not only were our founders grounded in the truth. Not all of them were Christians and not all of them were practicing everything completely, but it was rooted in the truth and they expected that the people would be rooted in the truth. What did the quote I gave last week from Alec, Alex Moitier? The problem is we've gone away from the Bible. We, the people, have gone away from the Bible. So if you're here this morning, you're listening online or you're here this morning in person and you say, well, I don't, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. I would just say that God established governments not, He established them to serve us and to serve you, not to save you. Our greatest need is not earthly justice. It's not social justice. It is personal forgiveness. The greatest need of the human heart is to be made right with God. And no government can do that. But the God of the universe, who is our ruler and our king, who's establishing his kingdom, can make us whole and bring us into right relationship. Reconciliation to, of men to God brings then reformation of governments who are ordained by God but made of men. So I invite you, if you don't know Jesus, 
to trust in him and his death as the payment for your sin. So you can be right with God. And when you are right with God, then you will submit to God and his authority. And your life will be better, not perfect. And you may be dealt unjustly, but you're answering to a higher calling. And if you're here this morning with me and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd just like to echo this. Our understanding of and our submission to God's word and God should guide our participation in all matters of life. It's the word of God and the God of the word that gives us direction, but it should give us direction. This whole idea about somebody being elected to politics and their faith not impacting their decisions or the judiciary and their faith not impacting their decisions is poppycock. It's garbage. Because if your faith doesn't impact your life, then I go back to that quote, you have no faith. The question is, what is our faith in? And who is our faith in? And when our faith is in Christ, then we have the root, the foundation for living a life of redemption, reconciliation, and our future is secure. So we acknowledge God's supremacy. We accept our responsibility. And then we seek to advance the cause of Christ by sharing the gospel. And, and as we gather around the table, the emblems that we have here, the symbols of Christ's body broken, the bread and his, and his blood shed, what's in the cup, assure us that no politician, there's no party, there's no program, is going to deliver us from our deepest danger. Christ's sacrifice alone, his death and his death alone, received by faith, guess what it does? It steadies us in these tumultuous times. Because he's still in control. Psalm 24, 1 is still true. He rules over all. Daniel chapter 4, verses 17, 25, and 32 are still, he gives it to whomever he wills. Still true. And not only does it steady us in the present, but it secures our future. Because one day, if you know Jesus Christ, you will be joining with him and all other believers in his eternal kingdom. So if you're this morning and you know Christ, I'd invite you. Or if you're at home and you know Christ, I'd invite you to take of the bread and take of the, uh, the cup and rejoicing in what God has done in humility to submit before who he is. Take some time to reflect and get your heart right with God. But if you're here and you know Jesus, then I invite you to partake. Let's pray. Father, you are a great and awesome God. You are our sovereign creator. You are merciful, prov mercifully provided a savior. You are our supreme ruler. And Lord, you govern over us. And so I pray that you would help us to fulfill our responsibilities. That we'd understand the limitation of government. That we would understand the, the benefit of government. That we'd be submissive to you, servants. Father, help us, if we know Christ, to rejoice in the blessedness of following you as we take these elements. And if we don't know, if anyone doesn't know you, I pray that they would just say, Lord, I, get, I guess I get it right now. Your spirit teaching me I, I messed up and I need to be restored in a right relationship with you. I confess my sin. I turn and I trust in Christ and believe that his death paid the debt I owe. And right now I invite you to be my Lord and my master. We pray this in Jesus' name. We are your church.
dismissed. God bless you this week.